Welcome to episode 10 of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind-the-scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not-so-common medical malpractice scenarios, using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs, resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind-the-scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our weekly podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Today, our guest is Iman Abakar. Iman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Elisa. Iman's background is as a labor and delivery nurse. She graduated with her bachelor's in nursing and worked labor and delivery while she studied for her master's in nursing and became a family nurse practitioner and worked in maternal fetal medicine, which is high risk obstetrics. And then she transitioned recently as a family nurse practitioner working telehealth and legal nurse consulting. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Elisa. Man, you're, you're the first nurse practitioner that has come on this show. Interestingly, our show is sponsored by Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Our team is a team of nurse practitioners. And to this point, we've had registered nurses. So I think it'd be a great opportunity for our listeners to just have a little bit of a breakdown on the difference between the types of nurses. It's probably a little bit nebulous for people in our audience who are not in the nursing industry to know what is the difference between, say, a licensed practical nurse or a licensed vocational nurse? a registered nurse and a nurse practitioner in terms of education and job function and standards of care? That's a great question, Elisa. I think that's very important to bring up. So an LPN or a licensed practical nurse would be required to have about 12 to 18 months of schooling. They have to work under a registered nurse. You, you bring up a good point that licensed practical nurses work either under the direction of a registered nurse, usually like the charge nurse or something like that, or they can work directly under the supervision of a physician as in an outpatient center or like a doctor's office. That is correct. And with a registered nurse, the entry level would be an associate's degree. It can also be a bachelor's degree. With a nurse practitioner, entry level would be master's degree. It could also be a doctorate degree. As a nurse practitioner, you are now the provider. So you provide orders for registered nurses, whereas as a registered nurse, you were receiving those orders from the provider. Nurse practitioners actually do independently diagnose conditions and prescribe medications and treatments and actually monitor the effects of those treatments and adjust them as necessary. As an attorney, one of the advantages of using a nurse practitioner to review cases, as opposed to always relying on your testifying expert, which tends to be more expensive that you can have access to someone who has that provider level thinking, but also can look at the nursing side of things because of their past experience as a nurse. So it gets that sweet spot. 
having been a nurse, but also presently working as a provider. Absolutely. I think it's a unique eye that we have. We are in a position to provide a unique perspective as a provider, as well as a registered nurse. We're able to look through different lenses to figure out what is going on in a medical legal case. So Iman, today you came to talk about a case in obstetrics. You want to tell us a little bit about the background of this case? Sure. There was a young woman in her about late 20s who was about 27 weeks pregnant, and she arrived to triage of the labor and delivery unit, and her complaint was vaginal bleeding. They did manage to stabilize her and hospitalize her for about a week before she began bleeding profusely again, and at that point, they made the call to do a cesarean section. So following the delivery, baby did have to be admitted to the NICU floor which is very typical for a 27 week delivery. After about two hours, it's very typical for moms to be transferred to the postpartum unit. Standard of care is that the moms require what's called a fundal assessment. And it's when you place your hand above the uterus and press down and feel that the uterus is firm, which means that the uterus is continuing to contract and allowing that blood to be released. Tell us a bit about the spacing of that. How frequent is that for standard of care? Does that kind of taper off? And also, is that therapeutic or more just for assessment purposes? Those are great questions. The timing of the assessments does depend on what standard of care in that hospital. But typically, right after delivery, it should be about every 15 minutes for the beginning. And then after the transfer to the postpartum unit, it should be happening every couple of hours, if not more frequent. Typically, hospitals would require at least the first 8 or 12 hours of it being every 2 hours or every 4 hours. Are those by doctor's order or is that a nursing intervention that is just assumed to be part of the regular nursing care on the postpartum floor? It is a doctor's order. So if a doctor fails to order fundal assessments, does that legitimize failing to do them as a nurse? Usually the postpartum order set already has that in there. You're talking about like a pre-printed page of orders that comes up for a given diagnosis, for example, postpartum that just allows for the doctor to check off those things that are relevant for this patient or some things just by default are already pre-checked. Correct. It's called a standing order set. So when you are assessing the fundus of the uterus, what you're feeling for is the firmness of the uterus. It should be firm. It should actually be rock solid. That means that it is contracting. Now, if it is what we consider boggy, it really just feels mushy. A boggy uterus would be one that feels almost like a deflating balloon. That means that the uterus might be collecting blood and not contracting and getting back to its normal size. So when you are assessing the fundus of the uterus, you would place your hand above the uterus and press down like a massage. And sometimes as you continue to massage, some of that blood is released and the uterus does firm up. However, where a patient is having a postpartum hemorrhage, that uterus does not firm up and it continues to stay boggy. And a lot of blood is releasing as you're continuing to massage. And it is considered a postpartum emergency. So your assessment procedure involves not just placing your hand over that fundus and massaging, but also observing that expression of blood that's coming through both for volume and color and any of that. 
Correct. So it turns out that the patient was actually experiencing symptoms of the placenta previa that she had been diagnosed with. Placenta previa is a condition in which the placenta is covering the cervix. The cervix is the opening which the baby has to come through and the placenta covering the cervix does put the patient at high risk for bleeding. Usually patients get diagnosed with placenta previa, either with an ultrasound or they are admitted to the triage unit with bleeding. Patients with placenta previa have to have a cesarean section, depending on how far the placenta is from the cervix. If it's a complete placenta previa where it's covering the cervix completely, the patient is required to have a cesarean section because the cervix is right above the vaginal canal. So if you have a placenta covering the cervix, then you're risking the placenta, which is the lifeline of the baby coming out first. If the placenta comes out first during a delivery, then the baby no longer has that lifeline. The baby cannot survive without it. Delivering the placenta first would not be safe for the baby. That's really insightful. You educated me there on some things about placenta previa. What I do remember, because I had to remember it for a test, is that previa means comes before. And so it's this condition where the placenta is coming before the baby. That helped me remember it when I was learning about it in family nurse practitioner school. To me, that says the door is blocked, the baby can't come out. But what never occurred to me is this idea that the placenta could potentially be delivered and cut off that baby's oxygen supply. Because at that stage, the baby's not breathing through their lungs. The only oxygen they have is through the blood flow, which is provided by the mother's circulatory system. And that placenta being delivered first is not compatible with that baby surviving the delivery. I appreciate how well you were able to break that down into layperson's terms because I consider myself more or less a layperson on matters relating to obstetrics. And I think that's a real advantage, especially in being a nurse practitioner, that you educate patients daily about their conditions or potential complications that they can experience. And so your need to break that down for the layperson is something that you do day to day in your clinical work. So I got a sense it was not the first time that you've ever given that spiel about what placenta previa is. Definitely not. Is this a condition that is diagnosed in utero via ultrasound or something that's not diagnosed unless they start bleeding? It can be both. It can be diagnosed during that ultrasound that patients would get around 20 to 24 weeks typically. It could also be missed during that ultrasound and the patient arrived to triage with the complaint of bleeding. Is that what happened in this case? It didn't seem that was noted on the ultrasound at all. From a legal consulting perspective, is that something that you start looking at the ultrasound technician or at the standard collection of information? Is looking at the location of the placenta a standard of care for doing an ultrasound. It is actually, it is standard of care to look at that placement because of the high risk that is involved with a placenta that is not in correct position. In this case, the patient did arrive to triage and then was diagnosed at that point. The anatomy ultrasound is a two-part ultrasound. The ultrasound technician is not always able to find all of the images that she needs in that one visit. So the patient typically is told to 
return four weeks later. With that second ultrasound, sometimes even then everything isn't able to be found because of baby's position or a number of things. And so if that's the case, then that might have been a reason why the placenta was not assessed. There just wasn't any note of it. Had the patient been diagnosed as, let's say she had her ultrasound at week 22. So this is week 27. So had she been diagnosed as placenta previa, what I think I'm understanding is that it's a condition. If they note it on an ultrasound that they watch and wait, and they are aware of it because they're going to manage that delivery differently. They're either going to do a cesarean section, or they're going to be well aware if it's a partial placenta previa, that this is an issue. And they're going to be particularly vigilant for hemorrhage on this patient. That is correct. Yes. So if they're being particularly vigilant for hemorrhage on this patient, it might've changed the behavior of the nurse who missed the fundal checks. That's overtly medically negligent to have missed those checks. It sounds like. Absolutely. Whether or not the patient had placenta previa postpartum, yes, placenta previa does increase the risk, but postpartum hemorrhage could happen to any patient. This is standard of care. And so these fundal assessments not being documented as done result in not addressing a postpartum emergency such as hemorrhage in a timely manner. The fact that this patient happened to be experiencing a relatively rare condition called placenta previa is actually not terribly consequential to the facts of the matter, which is she was at risk for hemorrhage as all postpartum patients are. And regardless of whether that placenta previa had or had not been diagnosed previously, she would have been at risk for hemorrhage regardless. And the failure to follow the standard of care or the standing orders for fundal checks was egregious anyway. Correct. Did you get a look at some kind of standing orders or pre-printed orders that existed for this hospital? And they included that fundal check as being something that was ordered by a physician? Yes, actually they were ordered by the physician. And in this case, it was every two hours for the first eight hours. And then after that, it was every four hours. And what did you observe as the actual nursing intervention that was taking place or the frequency there? It was actually very sporadic. Sadly, it was only documented about three times over a 24-hour time period. So it wasn't even just one nurse. It was multiple nurses. And I think it was just disregarding the patient and her complaints. And as nurses were told, if you don't document it, it didn't happen. So I think that a lot of the time nurses do the required standard of care. However, it's not documented. And so with legal nurse consultants looking at the documentation and seeing that it wasn't documented, we have nothing to go off of, but that. So it looks like they didn't do it. Right. We have to assume that it wasn't done. And we know the outcome was a negative outcome that it just falls in line with that assumption when evaluated by a jury, it stands to reason that they would look at that and say, this outcome did occur and the standards of care and the interventions that are in place to prevent that outcome are not documented as taking place. And therefore you know, there's liability there. It's just the reality, regardless of whether fundal checks were actually done by this nurse or that nurse, but collectively the hospital is held responsible for nursing care as a whole in these kinds of cases. That being said, if it was missed by multiple nurses, you have to wonder whether there could have been some standards or safeguards put in place to have prevented this. That's one of the things that legal nurse consultants do in the medical community. Our work, whether on the plaintiff side or defense side, 
typically results in improved measures in hospitals, improved policies, because sadly, when something like this happens, a hospital has to take a really good hard look at the systems they have in place to prevent it and see what they can do to tighten those policies and procedures to prevent this from happening again. So ultimately, the community at large benefits from the improved medical practices that come from these cases. It sounds like there could have been some things put in place in the electronic medical record to flag or pop up to request that nurses document fundle checks in order to clear out your notifications. And not only that they did them, but also the result of that. How much blood was there? Was it boggy? Yes. As you mentioned, those safeguards allow for safer practice and serve as a reminder for the nurses as they're going about their busy day, doing the never ending tasks that they're required to do the ability of these electronic medical records to be customized to the plan of care for a given patient is improved over the couple decades that I've been in the nursing profession, but it really is very helpful because sometimes you can take the orders that were placed and the frequency that those orders are given that is customized to the patient. You said in this particular case, the physician wanted them every couple of hours to a certain point and then to be less frequently that those kinds of customizations can be built into these electronic medical records so that those flags and notifications come up at appropriate times, which prevents notification fatigue. I know as nurses, we've all experienced notification fatigue in our electronic medical record system. When there's too many notifications, too many pop-ups, our brains just aren't built to handle that and it just shuts off. There's two types of notifications that electronic medical records are capable of. One is one that interrupts your flow and kind of jumps out at you versus Mm -hmm. just like your checklist of things that you need to get done by the end of your shift or on a four-hour rotating basis or on a two-hour rotating basis. At the very least, had this been something on that second category, maybe not necessarily a pop-up every two hours. That seems a little excessive and annoying to the point where the nurse would just like turn her brain off. I don't have time right now. But at the very least, just something where every couple of hours, she's going through her little list of things that she needs to do before the end of that two-hour cycle. Nursing care on any floor tends to be cyclic. Your day-to-day routine, it's every two hours you do these interventions, every four hours you do these other interventions, every eight hours you do these other interventions. And so if you organize your shift, you can really be very efficient, especially when in the case of postpartum, your patients are all presenting with a similar condition. It's very rote, it's very routine, and it seems like something that could have easily been prevented with a solid built-in electronic medical record reminder system of some kind. So ultimately, what was the fallout for this case? Unfortunately, in this case, the patient was rushed back into the operating room once the nurse realized that the patient had been bleeding profusely yet again. And at this point, the team attempted to do a hysterectomy, but unfortunately with the patient's condition and after quite a bit of blood loss and her vital signs being unstable, the patient unfortunately did not make it past this experience. She did leave behind a husband and three children. Yeah. Including a little newborn, such substantial damages to have a loss of a young mother like that. Thank you for sharing that story. I appreciate all of the education that you provided our audience about the obstetrics world and the standards of care for both nursing and providers. Thank you so much for having me, Elisa. This has been a really great experience. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. 
nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. To request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.